This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, dear listeners, this is Andrew. Just wanted to go ahead and offer a quick apology that this episode is a few weeks late coming out. This is the Cinema Fix Overdose episode for October 2013, and we're nearing the end of the month, but I wanted to make sure that I went ahead and got it out for you. I apologize for the delay. Life got in the way and prevented me from editing this and getting it out on time, but it's out now, and don't worry, we're going to do our best to get the November episode out to you. ASAP. So yeah, just wanted to let you know, I know it's late. I'm sorry. We thank you for your support. Again, this is a bonus episode, so I hope you're still grateful to receive it, even though it is a few weeks late. I apologize. I'm going to do my best to keep it from happening again in the future. But anyways, yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy the overdose. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix Overdose, your stop for the purest, highest quality bonus movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Monica, we have so many movies to talk about. <laughs> yes, we do. You just got back from a film festival. Oh, that's the best way to add movies to my letterbox. <laughs> How was the New York Film Festival? It was good. I always have fun at the New York Film Festival. It's a nice little smattering of European films, some mainstream American and independent films, as well as a few great documentaries. Well, if this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, you should know that this is not a regular episode of the show. This is the installment of Cinema Fix Overdose for October 2013. We've gotten requests from listeners that we also discuss older films and less mainstream films than the ones we normally cover on the show. So that's what these uh, bonus episodes are for. They're just a little extra overdose of conversation about the movies. And they're going to remain free for the time being, but we may start charging a dollar or two for them further down the road. That is something we are considering just because it does take a lot of time to, to record all these podcasts and we do need to cover all of our costs for hosting and bandwidth and, and, and all the other costs that go into um, into producing a network, a network of podcasts. And if you're a fan of the show, please write in and let us know if you'd be okay with that. Let us know if you're a fan of these bonus episodes and if you'd be willing to pay a dollar or two a month for, for, for extra episodes like this. Uh, we definitely want your input. Uh, Monica and I, we do want to give you what you want, but we also can't run this network without listener support. So uh, that's basically what the situation is, and, and we do want to hear from you and, uh, and, and, and hear what you think. But, uh, but let's talk movies. We'll each be discussing five things that we've seen over the past month that may or may not be worth checking out. And we're also going to be looking ahead at the coming month and offering some DVD recommendations. So, Monica, let's start with you. Uh, what have you seen over the past 30 days? Well, I'm proud to say that I caught 33 films over the course of the last month. So, I have a lot of options to choose from. But the first one that I want to start with is uh, right at the beginning of the month, I caught a... Uh, film noir marathon and in it i saw the naked city for the very first time it's part of the criterion collection and it was filmed entirely on location in new york city it's the solving of a murder that you see happen within the first five minutes of the movie and then it's the sort of police procedural that goes into tracking someone down in that time 
Um, it's a beautiful film noir mar- uh, movie and actually kept me on the edge of my seat, which I wasn't expecting for a movie uh, the 1940s. And the characters in it are really great and fun. So this is from the 1940s. This is in black and white? Yeah, 1948. Okay. So your your old school black and white chiaroscuro, that type of noir. Yes, the very same. Okay. So you would recommend that people check out The Naked City? Yes. If you love any sort of detective stories, even just looking for a great black and white film to watch while TCM is playing something you've seen 30 times, Naked City is a great, great place to go. It's also interesting to see New York City in the 1940s. Like, it really was filmed on the streets. The um, people who are walking and selling in the backgrounds are not actors. They're just there. <laughs> That's cool. So they got their little 15 minutes of fame in the, in, as background extras. Yeah, and there's some really great shots of New York. And it, again, it's almost like a little time capsule. Is this movie available for people to watch on Netflix or Hulu? Ooh, I'm not sure about Netflix, but I think because it's part of the Criterion Collection, it might be available on Hulu Plus. Okay. But I know it's been available on Netflix before. Okay. Well, I will have to check that out. Definitely one of the best film noirs I've seen. Highly recommend. Now, it's called The Naked City. Are there a lot of naked people in it, Monica? No, it's the dark underbelly of New York City crime. This isn't Lars von Trier's The Naked City. Good God, man. (laughs) It's nightmares. This isn't isn't literally about a naked city. Oof, no. This is a hard-boiled detective on the hunt. Oh, okay. Well, I've checked Netflix, and it, it actually is available to stream instantly on Netflix. There you go. So drop what you're doing. <laughs> Watch The Naked City. All right. I'm going to add that to my queue. There you go. All right. Well, the first movie I want to talk about is a movie I saw a few weeks ago. I wrote a full review of it uh, over at moviemedicine.com. This is not a recommendation. Oh, dear. I want to talk about Baggage Claim. You do that. <laughs> Monica, have you seen Baggage Claim? I did not. Okay, well, Baggage Claim is directed by David E. Talbert. It is a romantic comedy starring Paula Patton, and it is, it, it's a primarily African-American cast, and it's about a flight attendant whose sister is engaged, gets engaged. So she decides that she doesn't want to be left without a date at the wedding. So she just goes on this mission to... Uh, reconnect with old ex-boyfriends on planes and decide whether or not they're worth getting married to. She wants to reconnect with her old boyfriends and marry one of them. Okay? Yeah. Because she's so jealous that her sister is engaged and she's still single. It's tough. I understand. Sister jealousy is a thing, but man... (laughs) That premise. (laughs) This is one of the most sexist movies I've seen in quite some time. Yeah. This is one of those romantic comedies about how women's lives are meaningless without men. And how if, if you can find Mr. Right, everything will be perfect. This movie is so bad that there were times when I thought it was trying to be satirical and I was try- I thought it was maybe trying to be self-parody and make fun of these romantic comedy tropes. But no, 
It's just having those tropes and taking them seriously, okay? There's a, a character in this movie whose last name is Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Uh-huh. So he's literally Mr. Wright. Wright. Yeah. Cheeky. Cheeky. Do you think she might end up with Mr. Wright, Monica? I hope so. That It would be horrible to have any other last name ever. And all of, all of the ex-boyfriends she goes out with in this movie, with the exception of one, all of them are now, like, really rich, really smart. Uh, they're just strutting around with their designer clothes, living lives of luxury. And it's like, oh, why did she ever break up with them? I guess loser plus time equals dream guy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, usually there's one flaw that will keep her from getting together with them. It's just, it's so shallow. There, There's a montage in this movie, mm-hmm. Monica, of her de- going out with a bunch of different guys. And it's implied that she rejects a guy just because he doesn't know how to use chopsticks. And I was just thinking, how high are your standards, woman? You know, I might dump a guy if he doesn't have books at his house or if he doesn't know how to, you know, assemble an Ikea bookshelf. But I don't know if dump a guy over chopsticks is on my list of (laughs) things I will not tolerate. (laughs) Right, right. This is a movie about how not only should everyone go find true love, but that there is a perfect true love out there for everybody and that if you just look hard enough you can find someone who is perfect and has no flaws whatsoever it's 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 offensive towards women it's offensive towards men it it, it, just this movie is not good at all and i was a little bit concerned and nervous going into this movie a little bit a little bit because this is a movie with a predominantly African-American cast. It's aimed at a largely African-American demographic. And as a white guy with a lot of uh, white liberal guilt, I was not sure, like, oh, no, will I be able to properly review this movie? Will there be just aspects that, that I don't pick up on because I'm not black? I don't know, as a critic, Monica, if you ever struggle with that when you go to review movies, will I fully be able to appreciate a certain movie if it's aimed at a demographic I'm not a part of? I mean, I watch international movies pretty regularly. I'm a big fan of Bollywood. I'm not their target demographic, but I use the, I guess, the cultural understandings that I have in order to be able to criticize these movies. I mean, and there's still basic things in terms of cinematic craft that that's pretty universal, whether or not they can, you know, stage of or they can frame a shot. Um, they can block their actors. They can, you know, put their camera on a, on a tripod and be able to shoot. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Monica. And on all of those basic levels, baggage claim is a failure. So OK, well, then on the basic levels, then <laughs> we don't need to. Yes, we don't need to worry about whether or not you are quote not enough for to review this movie. Right. I, I don't know. I got nervous going to the movie because, like, I've never seen a Tyler Perry movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to admit that. And I don't know if you've seen a lot of Tyler Perry movies, Monica. But when you're dealing with issues of race in Hollywood and the fact that very few movies aimed at primarily an African-American demographic mm-hmm. get made in Hollywood... 
So mainstream white audiences don't have a lot of exposure to them. A lot of critics, such as myself, don't have a lot of exposure to them. It's that it was it was the kind of situation where I was just thinking, oh no, am I going to have to go back and like watch a bunch of Tyler Perry movies or watch a bunch of David E. Towert movies to properly review this film and and have the the best the most well rounded perspective? But this movie is so bad that I was I realized you know what you really don't. Yeah, a movie is a movie is a movie. There might be an intended audience for something like. I, I review pr- fairly frequently the LGBTQ film festival here in Boston. I am not the intended demographic, but I can still enjoy the stories and I can still enjoy the acting and the filmmaker's creativity. That's not an issue. All right. Well, moving on, what is the second movie that you would like to talk about? My second movie is actually, speaking of intended audiences, the new Mexican film, which is now currently the number one independent movie in America for the summer. It is Instructions Not Included, and it is directed by Eugenio Derbez. It's kind of like, it's very similar to The Kid and Big Daddy in that a former playboy gets saddled with a baby child from an ex-girlfriend and then becomes the perfect foster parent. And the thing of it is, what makes it so different is that it does deal a little bit with immigration. He comes to the United States to first find the mother. He wants to give the baby back, but then he can't find her. He's stuck with the baby. And if he tries to go back to Mexico, the baby will be taken away from him because it doesn't look like him and it has an American passport. And he doesn't. So he ends up staying illegally in the United States and then gets his papers through work and stuff like that. And he ends up working in the movie industry. I think it's smart. It makes fun of the Hollywood industry. Also has some jabs at like Johnny Depp and actually Alfonso Cuaron. He makes a gravity joke in it. But at the center of it that I liked the most was the relationship that Eugenio has with his younger co-star, Loretto Peralta. Um, She plays Maggie, who's his adopted daughter. And I think that's just, it's really great to see just a father-daughter story that's so positive and it's not antagonistic. You know, they go through their ups and downs, but for the most part, they understand how much they love each other. It's really sweet. It's not the best and it's kind of cheesy. It's really low budget and you notice it um, anytime there's like any sort of 3D effect going on. But at the same time, I think it's pretty charming. And it's also a big, it's a big surprise. This movie has made over $30 million in the United States. And it's a, it's a pretty big deal. I think a lot of Hollywood is now talking about it because they're realizing the potential for Spanish language film. I mean, this is a guy who just came out of mostly Mexican comedies and he has his own, he's done a few TV shows here and there, but he's only done very small bit parts in any sort of American films. So the fact that he's crossed over in a big way. One story that I came across was he was he had invited a lot of other Hollywood Latinos to come and see his film at its red carpet premiere, and none of them came. None of them even sent him any notices or anything like that. And then finally now that it's become such a big deal, they're sending him congratulations and things like that. Okay, so this guy that directed the film and and is the star... He wrote, directed the film, and it's been something that he's been working on for over 12 years. Well, his name's Eugenio Derbez. Yeah. I mean, since we were just talking about films aimed at a primarily African-American audience and and Tyler Perry Mm -hmm. and whatnot, I mean, is this guy poised to become the Latino Tyler Perry? I'm not sure yet. This is only his first film. So it's it's hard to say what he's going to do with that. I hope... 
certainly that this uh, instructions not included has opened up a lot of more doors for him. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, we, it'll be interesting to see if now Hollywood starts making him offers to make uh, English language films. And if so, whether or not he accepts it or whether or not... He stays in Mexico. Yeah. Right. He stays in Mexico and, and we start to see an explosion of Spanish language films. Hey, I'd be more than happy for that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be all up for it. Hey, if, if it gets more people to go see a movie that's not in their first language, I'm totally up for that. I mean, I was very excited. I I was actually shocked when it opened up in my local AMC and Regal theaters. Like, this is how big this has gotten. Yeah, I'd heard, I'd heard of the movie, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, it's actually, it's officially surpassed Blue Jasmine for the summer's number one independent movie. Oh, man. Yeah. Eugenio Derbez beating Woody Allen at the box office. Like it's it's pretty big deal. I'm a little sad that it's not better, but I wrote a longer form review over at uh, Letterbox. Wait, so you're saying it's not good? It has it. It has its flaws. It's good. It's not great. It certainly has its flaws. Okay, but it's still worth checking out. I think so. All right. Well, the second movie I want to talk about is a documentary Ooh. that. Got a limited release two weeks ago in New York. Uh, it is now expanded to L.A. and it's it's going to be expanding to different cities across the country later in the year. I believe it's also available through video on demand services and and maybe through iTunes. It is a movie called After Tiller. Have you seen this movie, Monica? No, I haven't. I've heard a lot about it. Well, I've seen this movie twice. I saw it first at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival in April, and then I saw it a few weeks after that at the River Run uh, International Film Festival. Uh. <laughs> uh, it was so good. I just I wanted to go see it a second time. This movie wow. is absolutely incredible. It is a documentary about the four doctors in the country that perform late-term uh, third-trimester abortions. Mm-hmm. And it's about the pressures that they face and just about their day-to-day obstacles uh, that they encounter in this profession. And it's called After Tiller. It's, it's a reference to uh, Dr. George Tiller, who was a uh, late-term abortion provider who was uh, murdered a few years ago. Um, he was killed by an, uh, in church by an anti-abortion activist. So these four doctors constantly live in fear for what other people might do to them because they disagree or they view what they're doing as as morally wrong. This movie was directed by two women, two two young women. Mm-hmm. Um, they're only 29 years old. Their names are Martha Shane and Lana Wilson. And the incredible thing about this film is that it, it just it, it, it really does a good job of changing the conversation about abortion it really just cuts through all the bs and isn't really about pro-life versus pro-choice it's Mm -hmm. really just about people the human story yeah yeah it's about here are these doctors here's what they struggle with here's what their lives are like here's what they think about what they do Mm-hmm. And also, here are these patients that come to them. Here are these women that come to them looking to get late-term abortions. And it's about why they're there and what they're facing in their lives. And by putting a human face on the abortion issue, it just really, really communicates how complex and how 
morally gray mm-hmm. this stuff is, how how tough it really is. Yeah. And it reminded me in some ways of the documentary from a few years ago, uh, Lake of Fire mm. uh, by Tony Kay, which is, it's like a three-hour documentary <laughs> that he made over the course of a decade. It's filmed in black and white, and it's, and it's about the abortion debate. And that movie is, it, it's a great film, but it's in many ways a talking heads movie. Mm. And it's about allowing a bunch of people from different sides of the issue to give their point of view mm-hmm. um, and, and, and to make compelling arguments for either side. And after Tiller accomplishes the same thing, and I feel like both films ultimately reach the same conclusion, that it's a very gray, complex issue. But after Tiller does it in a much more emotional way. It's not It's not as intellectual. This isn't a movie about people debating when life begins or whether or not a fetus is a human being or anything like that. This is really just about the doctors that perform these abortions, the patients that want to get them, and about how tough it is and how you can't really take these people and put them in little boxes mm-hmm. and, and little preconceived stereotypes. And it it just really does a great job of breaking down a lot of those stereotypes that people have on both the right and the left, because late-term abortions are controversial, even among pro-choice circles. There aren't very many people out there that support third-trimester abortions, and this movie just does a fantastic job of showing you who these people are that do it, and, and just really educating the viewer on what it's actually like and what it actually means for people to get a late-term abortion a lot of the time. And it's just, it's a really incredible film. Definitely one of the most empathetic and humanistic documentaries I've ever seen. I would highly recommend that people check out After Tiller, regardless of what your feelings are on the abortion issue. Just just go see it. This is a movie that should be screened in churches and schools across the country. I'm convinced it really, really could make an impact and change the conversation about abortion. Mm. It, it's just that good. Wow. Exciting. Adding that to my list. <laughs> Go see it, Monica. Going, going. Once once it's out, I don't know if it's getting a release here in Boston. I'll keep an eye out for it. All right. Well, what's the next movie you want to talk about? On a lighter note, I chose Before Sunrise, the 1995 Richard Linklater film starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. I had not seen any parts of the trilogy of Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, and I'm trying to catch up before Before Midnight comes out on DVD later this month. So this was the start. I thought it was just a perfect little meet-cute, and it's just all conversation, and I think Richard Linklater is really good at capturing that ease and free-flowing sense of just two people talking. The characters, you're rooting for them, and you hope that, you know, this ends up being something more special, and obviously we've seen through the years that it does become that. If you haven't seen it before, it's fun to it's great to see and it's, you know, nice young love. And if you've seen it before, I think it's good for a revisit. Such a good film, Monica. The before films are my favorite romance movies of all time. I love them. I've seen them multiple mm-hmm. times. And Before Sunrise, you know, every, it seems like every time one of these movies comes out. I remember when Before Sunset came out, people were like, oh, it's it's even better than Before Sunrise. And now that Before Midnight is out, people are like, oh, it's the best of yeah. all three. I honestly 
can't decide which one is the best. I think they're all equally good. Mm-hmm. Before Sunrise, is, it, I, I, I love it for its optimism. Yeah. And for its naivete at times. This is really a movie about young, young love. love. Yeah. It's the best way to describe it. Right. And just how how optimistic and blind that can be mm-hmm. in, in certain ways. And it's just such a happy movie that it's hard not to come away with a smile on your face because even though it's supposedly grounded in reality, you know, it, like like it takes place almost completely in, in real time, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of an evening. Yeah. And it's just it's literally just two people talking and it's riveting and it's fascinating. So it seems like it's grounded in real life and real life people in relationships. Mm-hmm. But it's so romantic and optimistic that it's also just drawing from classic romantic comedies mm-hmm. and just that overwhelming sense of of romanticism and that idea that, yes, you can find someone perfect for you out there. True love does yeah. exist and 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 you can and you can find it. Rick Linklater has to be like the total most romantic guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's such a such a good movie. It finds just the perfect balance between that romanticism and quote unquote realism. Mm-hmm. I just I love this movie. And part of that, um, one of the things that came out with uh, before midnight was Richard Linklater did confess that it was based on something that had happened to him that he did meet this girl, and he you know spent all night talking with her and didn't see her again and then unfortunately they she i think he found out that she died not long after yeah and it's it's interesting because it makes you wonder like to what extent is this a personal film for him to what extent are all of these movies extensions of his life either what's really happened to him through the years or what he wishes might have happened I love this series. I hope they keep making more. I want to see one of these every nine to ten years until Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy die. <laughs> I just want it to keep explore. I was. I want to. I want to keep following Jesse and Celine, these two characters, over the course of their lives, and I, I and see what happens to their relationship and follow them through the ups Aww. and downs. It'd be like that. What is it? Seven Up and the Forty. Was that the series that they go in? Yeah. Yeah. What's it called? Yeah, it'll be like the 7-Up series, the Michael Apted documentary series. That's what I want to see. I I don't want it to just be a trilogy. I want more. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's such a great recommendation. What are you going to see before sunset, before midnight? You got to get on that. I'm working on before sunset now-ish, and then before midnight is coming out later this month, so I'm hoping to get that then. All right. Well, the next movie I want to talk about is a movie called the canyons really monica did you did you see the canyons i did not this is the new movie from uh director paul schrader who's perhaps best known as the writer of taxi driver though he's also an accomplished filmmaker in his own right and this movie's gotten a lot of attention because it's a very low budget movie that stars Lindsay lohan and Porn star James Dean, and they play an L.A. couple. It's, it's just kind of about their relationship and their sex life. Like, they like to connect with random strangers online and then invite them over to the house to have sex with them. And it's about the jealousy that, can, that happens between them, and there's murder and violence. 
Isn't this supposed to be about the death of cinema or something? Yes, that is one interesting layer of subtext that the movie seems to be trying to touch on. Uh, the, the opening shots and the closing shots of the film are, are just uh, shots of old, rundown movie theaters that have been closed. Mm-hmm. And this movie was released on demand across a variety of platforms. It didn't just come out in theaters. It came out, you could access it through TV, through iTunes, through a variety of services. And it's a, it's, it's a movie about how now that we live in this digital age with all of this technology, we have so much access to this stuff. But it's also questioning, is that a good thing? Have we lost something through the death of, of film and through the death of cinema. The love is gone. Is, yeah, right. Is the love gone? And how is this new technology affecting our relationships? How is it affecting intimacy? That's what it seems to be trying to really dive into. And while I appreciate the attempt, this movie didn't really work for me. <laughs> On the whole, I I never really felt very emotionally invested in these characters. It's one of those movies that I can appreciate on an intellectual level, and I can appreciate the craft of it, you know, and, and, and the fact that he's experimenting and he's putting, he's using his own money to put this movie together, mm-hmm. and, and, and it seems to be a very personal project. I appreciate it. I don't really enjoy it, though. And I know there are a lot of people out there, a lot of critics that really love this movie, that got a lot out of it. I wish I could really see what they loved about it, but I, I, I just can't. It, it's, it's mediocre, not the kind of movie I ever feel the need to revisit anytime soon. Shut it down. <laughs> I will say, though, the performances, they aren't great, but Lindsay Lohan and, and even James Dean show that they aren't completely without talent. Man of many talents. <laughs> yes, yes. I wonder if we're going to start seeing more um, adult film actors try to make the switch to, to more mainstream movies. Well, that's been going on for a while, yeah, in terms of like female porn actresses. Right. I mean, we had Sasha Gray a few years ago in The Girlfriend Experience, and she's done a few other movies since then. Yeah, wasn't Marilyn Chambers the first one? Maybe. Yeah, I think you might be right. So yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll be interesting to see if now that there are all these opportunities to make low-budget movies and to put them out on a variety of platforms, it'll be interesting to see if we do start to see actors trying to cross over from different parts of the industry. There's always Pornhub. <laughs> all right, Monica, what's next on your list that you want to talk about? So actually, along with the dead and decaying theaters, um, I came across this documentary called The Rep came out last year and it was directed by Morgan White and it follows the ups and downs of the underground Toronto cinema which was a repertory cinema a few years back that just started up so this is a fresh rep house um, trying to show old films get involved with local events in the community and just this sort of challenges that hard economic times and just the challenge of having to build an audience where there's always everything going on. So it also looks at other current rep houses as well as rep houses that have recently closed. Um, I think one of the other ones profiled was a San Francisco co-op repertory house that unfortunately had to close after being in business for over 30 some odd years. So it's a good calling card for 
go support your local repertory cinema. It is a little flawed in that I don't think it presents the case fully, or at least in the time that it was made, not all the facts were known. Unfortunately, it looks like one of the investors for the Toronto Underground Cinema was involved with some shaky financial deals, so they ended up losing the um, property, and it shows that it closed at the end of the film, but it turns out that there had been a big financial bungle or so that they that's how they then lost the property. Does the movie go into a lot of those, I guess, more practical legal and financial obstacles that repertory theaters face? Or is it more just about why why they're important just from the perspective of a cinephile? Well, the very beginning is, of course, why they're important. And you have people like John Waters and Kevin Smith coming out and talking about how it's great to see, you know, movies on film. And it's so important to create a sense of film-going community. And then it moves into, you know, the day-in-day hardships and operations of, man, I just put on a movie and only three people showed up. Like, now your costs are not being offset. And those sort of challenges, um, you sit in on meetings with them, you find out, you know, just how much work actually goes into running these small little rep houses. They profile a bunch of them. They uh, they also check out the New Beverly and how close that was to closing if it wasn't for Quentin Tarantino stepping in and actually buying the Beverly. And now that's their uh, he's their new landlord. And it also looks at the film forum over in New York. And that's, you know, their dedication to continually programming smaller series and things like that. Well, I haven't been to the New Beverly, but I have been to Film Forum. And Film Forum is fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, uh, unfortunately, they didn't profile my two homes here in Boston, which are the Coolidge Corner Theater and the Brattle Theater. The Brattle Theater being the only full-time dedicated repertory house in Boston. It's one screen only, and it really dies and survive or survives on you know the people that go buy the tickets for their new Bogart series or their Halloween stuff that's coming up. It sounds like this movie is really aimed at cinephiles and people that don't just love movies; they love going to the theater mm-hmm. and they love the theater experience and yeah. and, and they love uh, seeing old movies mm-hmm. on the big screen. Yeah. Would you say it has kind of a limited audience? I would assume so, just because also rep houses aren't available everywhere. It's very much limited to, you know, where there's a sizable population. It's not something that you can just pull up in your living room like a VOD. But in the sense, I guess, I mean, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, (laughs) this might be something that interests you. Right. Yeah. And it's a great sort of uh, behind the scenes look at, you know, what it takes to run a theater. All right. Well, I will have to check that out. And it sounds like if any of our listeners are interested in the theater going experience and repertory theaters in particular that they should uh, they should check it out as well yep all right well the next movie i want to talk about is a movie that we were going to do a full episode on but monica you were away at the new york film festival so we ultimately didn't have time to record a show on it but now we can take a few minutes to talk about it and that is the movie rush directed by Ron Howard, about Formula One racing and the historical rivalry between James Hunt and Nikki Lauda. I gotta tell you, I found it aggressively average. Oh, I would put it on the high end of average for me, only because, you know, I have maybe negative interest in racing, and then I actually got, it's it's personal enough where I could say, ooh, I'm very interested in this rivalry and the two personalities behind it. 
I'd never heard of either racer before. I am not familiar with from Formula One, and I assume most American audiences will not be. So I was able to access it more through that angle, and I liked it. And I think the filmmaking the filmmaking's pretty solid in terms of you know the whole speed chases and you know laps around the track and things like that. And their story is pretty incredible itself. Right. I think it's a well-shot film. I think the racing scenes are, are handled pretty effectively yeah. overall. And the rivalry between James Hunt and Nikki Lauda is interesting because there isn't really one person that you're supposed to be rooting for. It kind of wants to, to demonstrate how they're both interesting people in their own right. So it, it leaves the viewer conflicted as to, well, should I root for Hunt to win or should I root for Nikki to win? Yeah. And I, I like that idea and I like that concept. I like that approach. But something about it just it just never fully connected with I me. I mean, it's very simplistic. Once you figure out that you can have two protagonists, it was more of a straightforward story. You don't feel like there's a lot of subtext there. Yeah, it's a little bit simplistic, a little bit clunky. I mean, it's the kind of movie that opens up not with one voiceover, but two. Which was very disorienting. That Yeah, that I would probably put the voiceover as, please cut that. Yeah, it seems like there are just little things that constantly kept me from fully being invested in these characters, which is a shame because I found them interesting overall as characters. Uh, Nikki Lauda, in particular, I think, is a very fascinating character just yeah. in terms of how he views life, how he relates with people. Yeah, at first I was like, hey, this guy can't be real. He's too much of a German-Austrian stereotype, austere, and looks at the economics of things and is all about numbers more so than people. Right. And I, I will say, D Daniel Bruhl plays Nicky Lauda. He gives, he gives a fantastic He's about to have a hell of a year, too, because he has the fifth estate coming up. Right, right. And I, I, I would argue that he outshines Chris Hemsworth. Yes, I would agree with that. Even though Hemsworth, I think, gives a good performances and is continuing to show that he isn't just hunky Thor. More than Thor. More than Thor. <laughs> yes, yes. That's basically his tagline at this point. Um, and he does a good job. But yeah, Daniel Bruhl just, just really knocks it out of the park. I really wish that the script had a little something extra to it or that the direction added added something to it. It just didn't quite feel like it lived up to its potential. And overall, I, I found it pretty unmemorable. Mm. And th that's mainly what I mean when I say that it's aggressively average. It's, it's not mediocre. Like, I would say it's a good film. But there's something so standard and unmemorable about it that I feel like in a few months I'm going to have completely forgotten it. Yeah, especially with all the quote-unquote Oscar movies coming out. It's, it's going to get lost in the shuffle. Right. I mean, do you think that this is one of Ron Howard's better films? Um, I'm not super familiar with all of his work, but I would say that it's it's a decent film. It's not a great film. It's not going to stand out when it comes time for competition. That's all. Okay, well, what is the last movie on your list that you would like to talk about? My last film is one of my favorite films that I caught in the New York Film Festival. It is a French film from Catherine Briot. And it's called Abuse of Weakness. It's a deeply personal film. It's based on her own experience when she suffered a serious stroke and she was paralyzed for months afterwards. And she wanted to go back to work. So she did. And in the meantime, in the research of this, she comes across a con man that she finds 
very fascinating and decides to make a movie about him. Well, in that, he ends up conning her. So the movie is a is half her struggle of, you know, trying to overcome her illness. And then the other half is the relationship between her and the con man and how that sours. I have the description here for the New York Film Festival. It has the real life case. He got out of her 650,000 euro. No small amount. Wow. She ended up taking him to court. She wrote a book about it, and now this is the adaptation of the book. So it's a hell of a film. <laughs> so she's made a movie based on her own book? Yeah. Okay. And it's, ooh, it stars Isabel Huppert. Oh, Isabel Huppert. Yeah, she's great. It sounds like you would recommend this film. I immensely recommend this film. Unfortunately, it's still on the film festival circuit, so I'm not sure when it is getting a release or if it's getting distributed in the U.S. I would assume so with Isabel's name attached. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, this movie sounds really, really interesting. I mean, again, this was something that she went through, and she has no reservations about showing how devastating it was. Like, you see her, you see uh, Isabel's character go through the stroke, you see her suffer and struggle to even put together a sandwich. Like, there's, it's very unflinching, where usually in American cinema, or just in, in culture in general, we tend not to look at these things. We like to ignore it or gloss over it. Like, it might be a cut sequence, but it's not almost half your whole movie. Hmm. So I found it amazing. Is this like a serious drama, or is it a comedy, or...? There are a few moments of laughter. I wouldn't say it's a very serious drama. It's more just telling a story. It's her experience. Okay. It's not as, you know, devastating as a more was last year, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I actually had made a joke to uh, about the New York Film Festival. It's like, man, I see the saddest movies here. I always want to hug afterwards. <laughs> All right. Well, I will definitely put that on my list of movies to watch out for. Abuse of Weakness. Okay. Well, the last thing I want to talk about isn't a movie... It is a television show. Cheat. It's not cheating, okay? Television can qualify as cinema too, you know, Monica. Ah. And this is a show that you would probably find very interesting, okay? This is a show that's right up your alley. Um, it's a new show. It just premiered last week on Showtime. It's called Masters of Sex. Yes. And it stars Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan as the sex researchers, Masters and Johnson, in the 1950s, who embarked on this really pioneering study of human sexuality. And it's about the pressures they face from society as they're attempting to begin this study. Um, I've seen two episodes so far, and it, it, it's also about their personal lives and their personal struggles dealing with sex and intimacy. And I am totally in love with the show, only two episodes in. There's just so much that it's exploring here just about how people relate to each other, how difficult it can be to, to find intimacy with another person, just the different pressures faced by men and women, the different power dynamics that are involved in sex and relationships, and, and, and the power struggle between different genders really fascinating stuff i love michael sheen i'm glad that i will now be able to watch him on my tv every single week team sheen yeah he is a phenomenal actor he's so good he almost made the twilight movies watchable 
<laughs> Lizzie Kaplan, this is uh, an actress that people may have seen in shows like Party Down, or she was in a little movie called Bachelorette, Bachelorette. Yeah. last year. She's very funny. And in this show, she's getting to show more of her dramatic chops. And she she has so much range as an actress. And she's doing a really good job of communicating what it was like to be a strong, independent woman in the 1950s who is, in many ways, very ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. But just how Virginia Johnson had to struggle in this time that was very much a time of repression so i would highly recommend that people watch masters of sex on showtime if if you get a chance it is worth paying the money to sign up for showtime just to watch this and homeland (laughs) honestly so uh so monica this is a show you would like i think yes i am team sheen too so and lizzie kaplan so you have my attention and their sex. <laughs> right. And as someone who, who's also a big fan of sociology and gender dynamics, mm-hmm. this seems like a show that you would really get into. Yeah. Darn Showtime subscription. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, oh, money. Don't they know poor people <laughs> like watching that too? Right. And it, what's really interesting is that it's on Showtime and it has sex in the title. So your first thought might be, oh, this is just going to be a show full of a lot of gratuitous nudity. It's only going to be for, for a bunch of pervy guys who like to stay up late and watch Showtime. But it, that's actually not that at all. And yes, while there is a lot of sex in it and there is nudity, it never feels gratuitous. It never feels salacious. And it feels like the showrunner, mm-hmm. Michelle Ashford, uh, she really knows what she wants to focus on. She doesn't want this to be just about skin and flesh. And it's one of the few premium cable shows that's run by a woman, yeah. as far as I'm aware, other than than like HBO's Girls and, and maybe one or two other shows. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely worth checking out Masters of Sex. Awesome. Um, All right, well, let's move on to the final segment of this Cinema Fix Overdose episode, DVD recommendations. Uh, Monica, let's take a look at some of the DVDs that are going to be coming out over the next month and let our listeners know what they might want to consider renting or or, or checking out, either through Netflix or on-demand services like iTunes. This is the end is already out, so you can go out and get that right now. That's a comedy that I like. Did you like it? Yeah, I think overall I, I was a fan. Um, we did a full episode yep. on it a few months ago, so people can go check that out. I think it's probably the funniest movie of the summer, with the possible exception of The World's End. end. <laughs> Not confusing at all. Right, and it stars James Franco, Seth Rogen, and a bunch of other people you've heard of. And uh, it's it's worth seeing just for Michael Sarah. Yeah, seriously. Never thought I'd say that again, but it's <laughs> worth it for Michael Sarah. Yeah, so if you're a fan of crude, raunchy... Freddy boy humor. Right, but also movies just about friendship and the end of the world, yep. then yeah, definitely check out This is the, the End. Apocalypse. This week, there are two movies... Uh, coming out on DVD that I would recommend people see. The first is a little low-budget sci-fi movie called Europa Report, Mm -hmm. which is a really cool little handheld, found footage uh, sci-fi horror film. It's about a space mission to Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons, and the scientist attempts to, to discover whether there might be any sort of life or potential for life 
on the moon of Europa. And they end up encountering some really unexpected and scary things. And it's it's a really well done film. It feels a little bit formulaic in the second half. It kind of feels like it falls into familiar territory with them just trying to figure out, oh, what is this thing that we've encountered? And, and gradually, you know, they start to get killed off one by one. But it's a really well done film. I think it's proof that there's still life to be found in the found footage horror subgenre. I, I, I really actually love found footage movies when they're done well. And this is uh, one of the better ones that's come out this year. So if you're a fan of sci-fi and horror, I would definitely recommend you check out Europa Report. Uh, there's also a movie, a, a horror movie called The Purge. <laughs> Coming out on DVD. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about it. Yes, I've mentioned it on the show. I wrote a pretty lengthy essay about it over at moviemezzanine.com when it came out about why it's one of the best movies of the year. I think it's one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated films of the year. It's a horror movie with a brain in the vein of Funny Games or even The Cabin in the Woods. And while I don't think it quite lives up to either of those two films, it's definitely worth checking out if, if, if you're a fan of horror films or if you're a fan of smart home invasion thrillers, uh, definitely check out The Purge. Monica, what else would you recommend? Well, I saw on the list that uh, Love Actually is coming out with a 10-year anniversary edition, which means you are now old. Um, It's going to be coming out October 15th, just in time for all of the holidays. I love it. It stars uh, Kira Knightley, Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant and Leanne Nielsen and probably like a ton more British actors that I'm blanking on at the moment. But it's one of my favorite films to watch on repeat on Christmas on TBS when they show it. Liam Neeson, Monica, not Liam Nielsen. Sorry, Liam Neeson. Don't insult Liam Neeson, okay? He's a badass. Whoa, sorry. I was listing them off the top of my head. My B. There's a lot of people in that movie, okay? Yeah, there are. I forgive you. I forgive you for your mistake. Love Actually, it's one of those romantic comedies. I didn't really care for it the first time I saw it. Nope, loved it at first sight. (laughs) Well, I've seen it two or three times over the years, Mm -hmm. and the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. I I, I do think now that it is actually a pretty well-done romantic comedy. It is very sweet. And it is an interesting look at relationships. So, yeah, I th- I'd say if you're in the mood for a romantic comedy about the holidays, Love Actually is definitely one of the better ones. Um, is there anything else coming out that you want to mention? Yes. If you missed The Conjuring this summer, you can certainly look out for it when I mean, it comes out to DVD and Blu-ray. It is the James Wan film that came out earlier this summer, and it stars Patrick Wilson and Vera Farminga with Ron Livingston. I loved it. You didn't so much, but that's okay. Not listening to you. I would definitely watch it late at night. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, yeah. If you're looking for something spooky to watch around Halloween, perfect. Uh, the Conjuring is definitely worth checking out. Also, you talked about Before Sunrise earlier. Before Midnight comes out on DVD October 22nd. That's my date to finish all the, the whole trilogy. Yes, I highly recommend that people see Before Midnight. It's a really, really great film. It, it, if you're a fan of Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, you definitely need to uh, to see the third one. And if you're not a fan of those films, uh, what's wrong with you? You're a terrible person, and I probably hate you. You are soulless. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there's a documentary called Leviathan 
coming out on October 8th, which I kind of hate, but I also kind of love at the same time. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Monica. I have, actually. I saw it at a film festival, and it was a chore to sit through. It's a very experimental avant-garde documentary about a fishing vessel and the camera is just kind of floating all around watching these fishermen uh watching these fish that they pull up onto the boat from an aesthetic standpoint it's really interesting it's really gritty and kind of grimy and gross no it's great from an aesthetic standpoint yeah the, the camera's just getting wet and it's and it's surrounded by all this grime and fish and, and birds, and it's a really bizarre movie. And this probably had the most walkouts of any film I've ever seen. Wow. I heard that there were complaints of people getting nauseous, though. It, it can make you feel a little queasy just because of how free-flowing the you camera on a boat. is. Yeah, you really feel it. You 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 feel like you're on a boat. Uh, you know, I'm hesitant to recommend it because I can't say I enjoyed it, but it's certainly an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's not for everybody. There were there was just a constant stream of walkouts at the screening yeah. I was at. It seemed like every five minutes, two or three people would stand up and leave. Yeah. And eventually it just became kind of like an endurance test for the rest of us. Like, can we make it to the end? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But here's the thing, though. It's kind of brilliant because these fishermen's lives are kind of boring and they are kind of a chore. And you get to see what a drag it is. There's this really incredible meta moment where you see one of these guys on this boat falling asleep while he's watching what sounds like Deadliest Catch (laughs) on the Discovery Channel. Yeah. And it's this just bizarre meta moment where we're kind of falling asleep watching him and he's falling asleep watching a movie about other fishermen. It's it's just a really weird meta movie. I mean, if if you want to experience what it's like on one of these commercial fishing vessels, you will experience it. It just won't necessarily be an enjoyable experience. There you go. That's how well it it captures what it's like. Yeah, I found out that the it was produced in partnership with the Harvard Film Program, and they had it here in Boston for about a week, and that's how I ended up catching it. But man, you were right about the endurance test. It really, if you're not falling asleep, you're trying to not lose your stomach contents. There's not any narrative whatsoever. It's just a lot of interesting images. Right. The last movie I want to mention uh, comes out on DVD and Blu-ray October 29th. It's a movie I saw uh, over a year ago at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's called Byzantium. And it is a vampire film directed by Neil Jordan, starring Gemma Arterton and Sarse Ronan. I always forget yeah. how to pronounce her name. The girl from Atonement mm-hmm. and the host. <laughs> and this is a really cool little vampire movie. Uh, it, it, it's about these two female vampires and how they relate to each other. 
Gamma Arterton plays this older vampire who kind of looks after Sorceronin's character. It, it, it does some really interesting things with vampire mythology and explores how they became vampires and it gets kind of mystical. It also just deals a lot with themes of intimacy and immortality and that, that idea of, okay, what is the cost of living forever and having to be on the run constantly because if people discover that you're a vampire, they will try to kill you. Um, and it can be a very isolated and lonely existence. There's a lot of interesting subtext about uh, femininity and sexuality and what it means to be a woman. Just overall, I think it's a really, really fresh take on the vampire tale. We're just saying something because I'm kind of going through like vampire fatigue syndrome. So Yes, there are a lot of vampire movies out right now. And they aren't always all that original or interesting. This is one that I would recommend people check out. I thought it was really, really well done. Visually, just really beautiful. And like I said, it does touch on some of those interesting themes that come uh, with the genre. So yeah, check out Byzantium. It should be available on October 29th. Uh, Monica, is there anything else that you want to talk about? I'm overdosed. I feel overdosed, too. I think that will wrap it up for this edition of Cinema Fix Overdose. Uh, we would love to get your feedback on the show. Let us know what you think of these bonus episodes. Let us know if you're enjoying them. Let us know if you plan on checking out any of the movies that we talked about. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes. Please leave us a review. That would really be a huge help to us. Um, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our two new TV-themed podcasts, uh, The Briefing Room, which is all about uh, the third season of Homeland on Showtime, and Agents of Shieldcast, which is all about Marvel's Agents of Shield on ABC. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastymovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at pathios.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. Follow me and let me know what you thought of these movies and our recommendations. And uh, we'd love to continue the conversation. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week overdosing on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!